Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and on behalf of my co-host Anne Fernald, I would like to welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this, our inaugural episode, It's Okay to Look Like a Potato on Zoom, Anne and I discuss our strange new reality. We'll talk about teaching online from home, trying to serve our students the best we can, and how to stay connected to our love of teaching as we struggle to redefine our classes and rethink our practices. It's great to be here with you on this inaugural podcast. The thing that you and I have been talking about since we transitioned to online instruction, what feels like four or five months ago, but what I think is about a week and a half ago, is what our students need and how we can help them and how do we even figure that out. So I'm wondering what you've been noticing as we've been talking to faculty members in terms of what students need and what, what resources faculty need to help students learn what they need to learn. That's been preeminent in my mind since I've been, you know, sequestered at home. And then really just talking to f- faculty about what they're trying to juggle. Does that, does yeah. that resonate for you? Uh, yeah. I, well, I mean, as you know, this call was delayed because a fuse got blown in our house because we've turned a unused room in the attic into a space where the kids can go and be. So we're not always, you know, in the same spaces all the time. But turning the space heater on in the attic meant that when someone else went to microwave lunch, we lost all power in the house briefly. So, you know, there's a lot going on. And um it's challenging. But the thing that was really interesting to me is that my this morning was the first day that my class met. And I had really intended to use the regular meeting time of class for a quick check in. And what I found was that 18 of my 19 students were there on Zoom and they wanted to hear me talk. And they, I said, would it help you to, to, for me to just kind of go over the text we're reading for the rest of the semester? And they really just wanted me to kind of talk at them in a way that I would never do in the classroom. I mean, I talked for a longer time than I would, but I think just that reassurance of seeing that weird gallery of all their faces while listening to my voice calmly describe the contents of the next few texts for the course was a kind of good regrounding for them. So that really took me by surprise because it was a pretty, uh, it struck me as pretty bad pedagogy, but I think it was actually pretty good care for each other because it felt like a good check-in. You know, it felt like, oh, that's right. We are having class and we do know stuff about the material of this class. And that still can be something that brings us back together. Yeah, I mean, I think the point about being brought back together. Right. So these are existing relationships. Right. So it's not it's not like we're forced to get to know each other, you know, never having interacted before. So we kind of do have a social bond that's we're trying to reconnect rather than initiate. And I think in sometimes we forget as teachers how important we are to the students. Yes. It's our very presence they can find comforting. And it was funny to me in class today that two of the students who always sit next to each other and kind of um, giggle with each other were busting each other up while I was talking. And that was 
immensely reassuring. Like, you know, one of them was just kind of wiggling and it made the other one crack up. And then, you know, a third kid changed her background a couple times in the middle. It was super distracting, but also it was just so reassuring that they're just as naughty and full baloney as they were before uh, the virus came in and changed everything. So that was interesting to me is that they have as little respect for me. (laughs) So, I I mean, I I think you're, you're hitting on a real tension that I've noticed conversations with faculty around our social and emotional imperatives and right. how those measure up against covering the content and what our outcome expectations are and how do we you know how do we approach weighing that when we're thinking about this new online world that we're in right and that was one of the things that my expectations were really low for class today because as i think you know um on thursday which was our first day online when my class met I had no audio for my call. So it was a complete disaster. And that had been such a total failure that all I really wanted was to be able for them to see and hear me on this check-in. And when we got past that pretty quickly and they all seemed ready to work and they'd done some of the fairly simple homework that I had assigned them, but they'd done it in a substantive way, then I did say, okay, here's what we're gonna do now. We're gonna go into breakout rooms and here are the two questions I want you to discuss in your small group. And I want you to come back able to tell us the conclusion that you came to. You have five minutes. And I was as firm and rigorous as I would have been normally in class. But that only happened kind of 50 minutes into a 75-minute session, right? And then yeah. they did it. And, and we had a fairly substantive discussion for the last 15 minutes. And so now I feel like I can begin to plan something that's a little bit more like, I mean, I don't even know what to call it because it's a very strange hybrid, but a little bit more rigorous going forward because I'm assured that they have the technology and the capacity to participate in this medium. And when I screen shared with them and showed them some of the other tools that are available to them for online learning. The tools were unfamiliar to them and they were not interested in trying them out, which was interesting to me. So, you know, we'll just see. I mean, I'm giving them more time to think through what they want, but I know part of what they want from their professors is kind of a consultation, but ultimately that the professor makes a decision. Right. And there's a kind of moment where there's too much consultation, too much. Hey, guys, what do you think? Hey, what do you well, we could do it however you want. That in itself is destabilizing in a very unstable time. I think what you're saying is we need to provide some kind of structure and order. So I know that when I log in and my professor is there, there's rules, there's procedures, and I know who I am in this space. Right. Because everything else can seem like kind of chaotic. Maybe what we're saying is that we can reinterpret structure and rigor as comforting to them. Clear expectations of what we're going to do and what our roles are. Maybe they need some kind of order communicated to them that we haven't abandoned your learning, right? We're still committed to that project. We're just going to do it in a different way. Absolutely. I think that's really, really important. 
One of the things that you and I have been talking about a lot as we think about going forward with classes, you know, in this kind of semester that's got a real before and after to it, right? We're about halfway through a semester that started in a face-to-face learning environment and that's ending in an almost entirely online environment is thinking about course goals. Can you talk a little bit about backwards design and how that can help us think about the extent to which course goals need to be revised, perhaps, and the extent to which course goals might be able to stay the same going forward? I think in this current situation, the important thing to bear in mind is the student learning objective, not the mechanism by which we get there. What I'm trying to say is that let's say that I have this activity that I do. I really enjoy doing it. I've had great success with it. The students seem to like it, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do it online. Right. So really the project here in our current situation is to think about, well, is there another way to get there? So think about you're in the car on a family trip and you're, you know, you're headed to your destination and oh, there's traffic on the expressway. Well, is there another way to go? So I'm not committed to the expressway. I just want to get there. Right. So part of it is to try to think creatively about how do I reach this learning goal? What's another way to get there? We're not going to be able to do maybe this role play or this presentation. Maybe we can, but in order to do it in an online environment, it might be technologically demanding. And the time it takes to make that activity possible may use up other time that would impact other learning objectives that my hoped for activity wouldn't cover. So it's like a trade-off. So part of the work, I think, is to like redirect our thinking from the content and the activity to the learning outcome. I think also this ties into what you were saying before about providing a sense of continuity for the students, that we don't want to suddenly reconceptualize what the course was going to be, because that'll sort of make them feel kind of a sense of loss, right? Like, well, I thought I was going to learn these things, and now you're telling me I'm not learning them anymore. Right. Can I really learn a new instructional methodology and adopt master a whole new way of thinking about teaching and learning in the next four weeks? Well, I I know that I can't. I mean, I know that I can't. And I've been playing around with some things. And one of the things that's been most kind of reassuring to me is thinking about all the extant ways that we're already communicating with our students online and thinking about how to profit more deeply or extend or expand our use of those things. So almost all of us are communicating with our students over email already. Okay, so that's one way that we can certainly keep doing email in this moment, right? And so then I'm thinking if I add one new tool to the couple ways that I'm working with my students online, that seems like something I might be able to do on some days. But on some days, I just feel totally exhausted. I mean, I find um, meeting with people on a Zoom call much more tiring than being in people's presence. And I get off a Zoom call and I have less energy than I did when I, when it began. And so I'm trying to be really patient with myself around those things. And so and one of the challenges I faced in redesigning my freshman and sophomore level course right now is that I had done this incredibly experimental thing that I really love, which is that the midterm assignment is design your own syllabus for the rest of the semester. 
Mm. And so the rest of the semester was blank. And my students had all written their design syllabus. And the day we were going to bring those designs together into a collaborative, mutually uh, designed class was the first day that we went online. And so I went into spring break with a completely blank slate. But, you know, we've been working on Google Docs together and my students um, have put up a blank slate on Google Docs and I kind of threw in some of the suggestions that they had individually given me and asked them for their notes and read through their notes and was able to come up with something that I feel I can do going forward and that that honors the interest that they expressed in terms of what they want to learn for the second half of the semester. But, oh, it felt like a heavy lift and it felt like I had really given myself like an extra degree of difficulty. There's something I that I wanted to ask you earlier about just this kind of being in your home, right, in your personal space. Right. Interacting with students synchronously, seeing them, they're seeing you. You know, there's your office or your living room. There's your cat, right. there's your child in the background. How how does that feel in terms of like boundaries? And Well, I'm lucky to have a study with a door that closes. That's huge. And that's partly because I make my children share a bedroom because uh, I, my career is really important to me. <laughs> and I have been thinking a lot about those boundaries and... Zoom allows you to make a, a virtual background, which mm-hmm. is really fun. And I love that as a way of masking exactly where you are if you don't want people to see the laundry basket behind you. But um, my laptop is old enough that it's not supported on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> so these problems are really um so if you have a laundry basket in your office, that's like a work-life balance thing you may want to, you know, think about. I generally don't have a laundry basket in my <laughs> office, but I'm, I'm badly backlit. And um, that's a source of, of, of some embarrassment. I uh, follow uh, uh, Chanel Miller, the writer, uh, a memoirist on Instagram, and she has really wonderful cartoons about stress and anxiety and resilience and the other day, there was just a single panel cartoon of, and it just said, it's okay to look like a potato on Zoom. And I'm going to adopt that as my <laughs> mantra. <laughs> Maybe that should be the name of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's, that's, that's going to be our, I think, the first episode. It's gonna, It's okay to look like a potato on Zoom. It's totally the first episode. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. My, I feel like, you know, we're trying to move toward understanding by design and like learning objectives, but we really do keep coming back to this human component. Right. And how do we get ourselves and our students to a state of readiness? I think one of the things that I'm picking up on from faculty I've been working with is, you know, they were expert, right? Right. Three weeks ago, expert in their field, in their classroom interacting with and advising their students and colleagues they were expert and now suddenly they feel a sense of you know incompetence technologically certainly 
And that loss of confidence strikes at the heart, I think, in some ways of their identity. I, I, I see myself as a teacher. <clears throat> and if I can't do that effectively, if I can't serve my students in a way that I feel proud of and deeply connected to, that's a real loss. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, many of us remember that charming, hilarious video of the young journalist scholar in Korea who was doing an online interview, you know, a video interview when his uh, toddler burst into his room and he had to kind of bat the child aside. And then the wife came in. There was another baby and a walker coming in. And, you know, what was mortifying to him was hilarious to the viewers and very humanizing. And my nephew is a sophomore at the University of Washington in Seattle, and they've been online for a couple weeks longer than we have. And he's seen people's cats and people's children in the background, and he loves it. He's so interested and relieved to have his professors be humanized. But for us as faculty members, I think it feels really vulnerable. And it's good to know that a generous student feels happy and um, reassured to see us in the context of our own home, but it doesn't make it uh, super easy to share that with our students. Um, And it doesn't make it super easy to uh, feel vulnerable. And that loss of a sense of control and expertise is really acute. I mean, I really felt it when my class didn't go, was impossible to conduct the other day. It was really hard. And so, you know, these these kind of conversations about compassion have been incredibly compassion for ourselves have been incredibly sustaining to me as we make this transition. And then I think that makes me think we should pivot to the question of thinking about our most vulnerable students. You know, I was very struck by how the resilience of the students I saw But there are some students, and we've been talking about this in the town halls, for whom this may mean the end of their ability to access college. And as we think about moving online and continuing to deliver the kind of education that our students deserve, we also have to be thinking at the same time on a slightly different track about how we're reaching out to those students who are not able to continue or those students who are facing struggles that make simply doing the reading hard. You know, there's something we sort of touched on earlier about we we have an idea of who our students are. And that idea may not may not really map on to the lived reality of, of many of the students that we that attend our classes. We may have certain assumptions in our planning, in the, the tools that we're selecting, the way that we're making our course and ourselves available that are unrealistic for, for some portion of our students. And so it's really hard to balance a, a live interaction online can, can most closely replicate, in my mind, perhaps, what being in the classroom is. And if you can't attend, you know, here's this sort of plan B. And I don't know how to solve that, you know, how to solve that problem, how to be equitable and take into account the, the varying 
accessibility issues of, of the various students that, that are in my courses. I think a good place to start, though, is to think about them. And I guess my, my wife is a kindergarten teacher, and kindergartners have no prior knowledge, right? So it's like teaching a room full of Frosty the Snowman, if you know this reference. Right. Everything is like they totally have no context. You have to build a set of shared experiences that you can use to reflect upon and talk about and mull over to activate their thinking. But you also have to share with them why you're doing what you're doing because they don't know. Right. And if you, if you don't do that, then you're just ordering them around, right? They're not learning. They're just following orders. I, I guess I, if I were making recommendations, I would say, let the students look behind the curtain. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is what I hope you'll get out of it. This is my intention. And to, to kind of talk collaboratively about, well, what are your expectations for, you know, how do I perform well, professor, in a Zoom session? Like, what, is that, what, do I, what does that mean? Right. I'm here. What's a good job? I think we all need some sense of what's a shared vision of competence, both as a teacher and as a learner in yeah. this new space. Because I knew before in my classroom, or I thought I did, but I'm not so sure what that is now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. That makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing that I'm thinking about, and maybe we can um, kind of close, I'd love to hear your reflection on this uh, idea, but I've been reading and thinking about um, the work of Jim Lang, who's the director of the Teaching and Learning Center up at um, Teaching and Learning Center at Assumption College up in Worcester. And he has that book, Small Teaching, and I just got his book, Small Teaching, online. And uh -huh. he has a new book coming out on attention and distraction. And he's really thinking about the fact that we are all really distracted right now. And our attention is pulled in many different directions. And this is before the pandemic, right? Just thinking about people's phones. And when I talked to him about it, he was going to be our third speaker in the reimagining series this spring. And when I talked to him about what he wanted to talk to us about, he was saying that he doesn't want to ban laptops and phones from the classroom, but he wants to find ways of capturing people's attention and find ways of getting into that kind of mode of working where we're in a kind of flow where we don't um, check our phones for a few minutes. And now it strikes me that, that we need that more than ever, right? As we can't live this time when we're confined to basically to our homes with occasional jaunts to the grocery store in a state of constant anxiety. We have to keep going and we have to keep learning and growing and trying. And how do we design activities for ourselves and our students that capture enough of our attention that... Um, we're still learning and that we're still in community with each other. So I'm wondering what you think about that and if you have ideas of good ways of doing that kind of work when we're meeting online. I think for me, what I do is to try to think of myself as a teacher, which is a little different. My first experience teaching is, is you know, I was a high school teacher for about 10 years and I think it's a, it's different in some ways. 
I don't know if faculty think of themselves as teachers so much as philosophers or medievalists or chemists in a, in a way. Right. That, that's a little different from how we experience it in K-12. One of my favorite uh, movies is uh, it's a film of A Man for All Seasons. Have you seen it with Paul Schofield? Oh, not for a million years. And there's this part of the film where Richard Rich, who's played by William Hurt, he wants Paul Schofield, Paul Schofield character, to, to get him a job court. And he says to him, you know, be a teacher and you'd be a great teacher. And Richard Rich says to him, he's playing Thomas More. So Richard Rich says to Thomas More, well, who would know? <laughs> and Thomas More says, you, your students and God. That's not a bad audience. So I think it's it's uh, for me in my own practice. I, I try to think about the themes that we're touching on in, in this, you know, our, our first talk, which is coming from a place of, of caring for the students. Right. Right. Especially at, at, you know, at a Jesuit university like our own. And trying to, to understand that, you know, academic rigor in our learning objectives, th those are part of that care to hold, to help them reach a standard that we've, you know, I've communicated and that they understand and is measurable and realistic. But it, but it's part of kind of a, a you know, a suite of services you know, <laughs> that, that, that we offer them. I love what you're saying. And I love what you're saying about being a teacher, because I found that for me too, being a teacher is a huge part of my identity. And it's been very liberating because when I'm out in my non-Fordham life and I meet people in my town and they ask me what I do, I tell them I teach. And I don't tell them I'm a professor because if I say I'm a professor, they expect me to lecture at them. And if I say I teach, they imagine that I'm a kind person. And I'd so much rather lead with that kindness than with that sense that, that I'm suddenly judging them, which is the perception that a lot of people who aren't in, in the university day to day today have of what it, what that word professor means. And so then when I think about being a teacher and I and think about what it means in this moment of crisis, I think it's helpful to think about that suite of services, right? Part of it is learning a lot about Virginia Woolf. Part of it is asking people if they're okay. And part of it is being willing to send them a picture of my dog as I did the other day, just to kind of, because it was funny and I wanted them to have a moment of just lightness or remembering that I'm a human um, while they think about how we're going to get through this next, you know, month and a little bit together. So we should probably move into like a, how do we wrap this up? I think that's okay for a first episode. Yeah, it's not bad. To send gentle and supportive feedback and suggest topics for future episodes, please email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. On behalf of Anne and myself, thanks so much for listening.